pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen.
praise your name forever, Lord. Hallelujah. Worthy is the Lamb. Hallelujah. We praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 We glorify you, Jesus. You're the reason we're here this morning. Hallelujah. Praise you, Worthy is the Lamb this morning. Amen. Hallelujah. Just lift your hands and praise him this morning. Father God, we thank you, Lord. Praise you, God, for this day, Lord. We just glorify your name today, Lord. I ask you, Father, that you just move in this service, Lord. God, that you bless the word as it comes forth, Lord God, anoint us, Lord God, to speak words of life and truth, Lord. Father, and with accuracy, Lord God, we honor you, Lord. We thank you, Father, for moving today. Lord, just have your way. We glorify your name. We give you thanks and we give you praise for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. Thank you, Judah. You can be seated. Children, you're dismissed. Youth, you're dismissed. Hallelujah. Enjoy yourselves. Praise God. Hallelujah. Y'all just give me a second. Stick my ears back in. Hallelujah. God's so good today, amen? Amen. Give us a beautiful day today. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Forgive me if I seem a little nervous. This is one of the big four. Resurrection morning, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and Christmas. Thankful for all the CEOs here today. I don't know what that is. That's Christmas and Easter only. Hallelujah. Lord's good today. If you've got your Bibles with you, not very many people carry their Bible anymore. Everybody's using an app on their phone. But turn to the book of John, chapter 20. That's where we're going to be reading from today for our text. I'll share some word with you today. Hopefully encourage you. Amen. Have you ever had somebody tell you something that was too good to be true. You know the old saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. You know, despite all the evidence, you just can't believe, bring yourself to believe it. You know, even though it could change your life. The story of a man who was mountain climbing, and as he was climbing, he lost his footing, found himself dangling on a rope, hanging between the mountain and the ground a few hundred feet below, and as he's hanging there, he yells out, is anybody up there? The voice calls back, yes, I'm here. Who is it? It's me, the Lord. The Lord, help me. Do you trust me? Yes, God, I trust you completely, Lord. I trust you completely. Good. Let go of the branch. Amen. What? If you trust me, let go of the branch. Anybody else up there? <laughs> Sometimes we think those things that sound too good to be true might be. You know, even when there's all sorts of evidence that, that it's a good thing and it's good, you know, the greatest news of all time was when Jesus was crucified and buried and rose again on that third day from the dead. And here's the thing, I believe that one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection is the change that's made in the believer's life when they come to trust Jesus. Do you trust me? Yes, Lord, I 
today I want to share with you something, you know, we, Pastor taught on Passion Week last week. The beating and the crucifixion and, and the burial of Jesus. And here we are, it's 11 o'clock in the morning and by this time Mary and Martha have already been to the tomb. They've seen that Jesus isn't there. And they go back and they tell everybody else, he, 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 he's, he's risen, we saw him, we saw him in the garden, he talked to us. So they ran back and they told everybody else. And what I want to talk about tonight, today, tonight, today. I want to talk about today what happened that night. So if you've got your Bibles, John chapter 20, verse 19 through 31 is what I'm going to be reading. And I'm reading the New International Version. It said, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive another's, anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this morning in our text, we see that the disciples were huddled together in a room. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's already been an eventful day for everybody. It's evening, they're excited, but they're afraid. The door was locked because rumor had it that the Jewish leaders wanted to arrest and dispose of anybody that had been associated with Jesus. You know, they'd taken Jesus and they'd put him in a tomb and they put a seal on the door and they placed soldiers there to guard him. But now, here they are, it's Sunday morning and Jesus is gone. He's not in the tomb. What happened to him? Well, those followers of him must have done something and, and, and must have took his body somewhere. You know, they're trying to stir up trouble. They're trying to make people think that this Jesus has risen from the dead like he said he would. Like anybody would believe that. And so the disciples were afraid. They were afraid the Romans were going to come and get them. They were having trouble believing what they had heard. Just a few hours early, Mary and the, and the other women had come back and said, Hey, Jesus is alive. He's risen. We've talked to him. We've seen him. The news seemed too unbelievable. After all, it was just a few days ago that they had seen their leader their best friend, their teacher, 
their master. They'd seen him arrested. They'd seen him beaten. They'd seen him crucified. <coughs> They'd seen him buried. And the Romans set a guard over the tomb. Jesus was dead and buried, and along with him was all their hopes and dreams and desires. All of that had been laid in the tomb of Jesus. The disciples were discouraged. They were disappointed. They were consumed by doubt. But then suddenly, without warning, Jesus is in the room. It's titled my message today, Jesus in the room. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a figment of their imagination. He wasn't some specter of their grief. He was the risen, glorified Lord. There wasn't any rebuke. There wasn't any, how could you fail? How could you fall short? Jesus doesn't scold them. He doesn't shame them. He walks in. He's in the room, and the first thing he says to them is, The King James Version of the Bible says that they were glad to see Jesus. But the version that we just read, the NIV, said they were overjoyed. Can you imagine? The one that you had walked with, that you had worked with, that you had served for three and a half years, had been dead and buried and crucified, and, and, and now he's standing there talking to you. You imagine the joy that they had. But there wasn't any rebuke, no how could you. Those first words out of his mouth show one thing, that he loves them and he accepts them. Peace be with you. Can you imagine the joy and the relief that flooded their hearts that day? about an understatement. Train never comes through here. <laughs> you know, in, in just a few moments, the presence of Jesus had transformed those disciples from being weak-kneed, cowering cowards into confident, faith-filled men. They were ready to pursue the will of God at any cost of and that's the effect that a resurrected Christ has on someone who comes to believe on, on him and to trust in him and, and embrace his grace. Wherever people are confronted with the reality of Jesus' resurrections, their, their, their life can be transformed. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, we can we can experience the power of resurrection in our life. Those dreams and hopes and, and, and desires that we had can live again because of the resurrection of Jesus. But we read there that they were huddling together and they were scared. Can you imagine? When I was in boot camp, I, I, I was privileged to be on Paris Island during Easter. But we had a Navy chaplain that was great. And that morning he came in and he was, Easter morning, he, he was dressed from head to toe. He had on a robe and he had on a, a fake beard and this long, long wig. And he started his message by singing the song, He's Alive. He preached his Easter message from the perspective of Peter. He was dressed as Peter that morning. He came in and he preached the Easter message as he thought Peter would be responding that first resurrection morning. That doesn't have anything to do with my message. I just thought of it. Rabbit trail. But here they are. They're afraid. They're scared. They're 
because they think they're coming after them. That's what made me think of it. First line in the song, the gates and doors were barred and all the windows fastened down. Spent that night in sleeplessness, arose at every sound. Half in hopeless sorrow, half in fear of the day, would find the soldiers breaking through to take us all away. They were scared. But then all of a sudden, Jesus comes in the room. We don't have anything to be afraid of when Jesus is in the room. But there wasn't any rebuke, like I said a few minutes ago. There wasn't any, how could you? Jesus didn't scold them. The first thing he says to them is, peace be to you. That's a common greeting back then. Peace be with you, and the common reply would be, and to you also. Jesus, I'm sure, had told them that many times in the three and a half years together. But in this situation, it was more than a greeting, it was a message. Can you imagine the relief and the joy that must have flooded their hearts? Those first few words that Jesus had spoken to them after his resurrection were almost exactly identical to what he said shortly before he was arrested. John 16, 33 says, I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. You know, in, in some respects, it, it's almost as if the last few days hadn't happened. You know, certainly the disciples felt unworthy, but the Savior comes and he extends peace to them. Let that sink in for a minute. How gracious of an act that was that Jesus came and he extended peace to his disciples. The disciples were afraid. And these weren't men who were easily frightened. They were men's men. They were scared. In verse 19 there, that, that word fear carries the idea of flight. They, they were so, so alarmed and so frightened that they were ready to run. Now take that and contrast it with the word peace. The word peace there, one of the meanings to it, you know, you you look up these words and you go back and you go to the original Greek and all that kind of stuff. And you find all kinds of different meanings. Here in this verse, the, the, this word peace means putting together that that's broken. Jesus knows they're afraid. He walks into them and he says, peace be with you. He walks in and he says, shalom. Shalom means all good to you. But do you understand that Jesus wants to extend peace to you and I as well? You and me, you and I. Some country you ain't going to tell them what you'll get out of this. But he doesn't gloss over your past. He knows your past. He, he's aware of the mistakes that you've made. And he knows how that we've scorned him, how that we've denied him, how that we've rejected him. When we should have been speaking up for him. But he still extends peace when he says to you, Shalom. That's what I want to talk about. You know, we find peace with God in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
we have peace with God. Why do we need peace with God? Because if you read on just a few more verses down, you know, in verses 8 and verses 10 of, of Romans chapter 5, you're going to find out that the word is going to tell us that we were enemies, sinners and enemies of God before we were converted. Before we trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we were sinners and we were enemies of God. Jesus on the cross took away our sin. One place in the Word says that He became sin for us. You know, if we're willing and, we're, and to go and to place our faith and our trust in Him, God will see us as though we never have sinned. Why? Because He sees us through the blood of His Son. When we trust Jesus as our Christ, as our Savior, as our Messiah, we find peace with God. Jesus pursued us in our sin. He wanted to save us from ourselves and from eternal separation from him. When we surrender our will to him, when we quit running, when we quit resisting, and accept Jesus as our Christ, we can have peace with God. And the thing of it is, when I have peace with God, I can have the peace of God when I'm going through things that I don't understand. I can have peace in difficult of John, there's five times that Jesus promises peace. Three of them are found in, in chapter 20. Another time Jesus comforts his disciples at the news of his impending death with the promise. John 14, 27. This is the NIV. It says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. And then on the eve of his crucifixion, John 16, 33 says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Why did Jesus give that message? So the disciples would have peace in a world of trouble. So that we could have peace in a world of trouble. Notice how he contrasts those things. He says, in me and in the world. In Jesus, there's peace. In the world, there's tribulation and trouble. but we can overcome the world when we're in him. You know what that means? <coughs> Excuse me. That means you need to be in a relationship with him. That means you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ to have peace. To have world overcoming peace. Because the world wants to take us and it wants to drag us down and it wants to conform us to its image. But the word of God says be you transformed by the renewing of your minds. How do we do that? By getting the word of God inside us. Someone once said that peace is the possession of adequate resources. In Jesus Christ, we have everything that we need. Jesus said the key was in two words, in me. In 
ourselves, we don't have anything, but in Jesus we have everything. Not only do we enjoy that vertical peace with God, you know, we, we, we enjoy fellowship and favor with God, and, and we enjoy communion with God, and we have a relationship with Him, and we love Him, but we can have peace with everything around us and peace with other people in our lives. We can have peace in our relationships. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father Amen. by one spirit. Jesus came to make a way for us to be able to have a relationship with Father God. It's the power of the, the cross and, and the resurrection. Nothing but the cross can offer us peace with God. And nothing but the cross of Jesus can remove the barriers between us and God. That's the only thing that's going to remove barriers between cultures, that's going to bring peace between husbands and wives, that's going to bring peace between brothers and sisters in the church. It's Jesus. You know what the biggest barrier to peace is in the world today? Pride. Pride's what led to man's first act of obedience. They didn't say it was, but, but if you get down to it and you get to looking at it, Adam and Eve did what they wanted to do. They, they in essence, said, I'm not going to do what God told me. one of the biggest conflicts starters in homes. Why? Because husbands and wives refuse to admit to one another, hey, I was wrong. We don't like to admit that we're wrong. It, it, it's one of the biggest conflict starters in churches because we don't like to admit that we were wrong. Someone was once talking to Leonard Bernstein. He was the orchestra conductor. And they asked him a question. And the question that they asked him was, Mr. Bernstein, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And he replied without hesitation, second fiddle. The hardest thing in the world to play is second fiddle. You can find people all day long that want to play first fiddle. And they'll play with so much enthusiasm, but it's hard to find someone that will play second fiddle with as much enthusiasm as somebody playing. second fiddle you have no harmony but Jesus came he tore down the walls and he united people to himself there's something else that 
that's an obstacle between me and the peace of God and you and the peace of God. We can live in harmony with others or we can get along with other people. But unless we come to be at peace with our past, we're constantly going to be plagued by guilt because Satan's going to keep piling it on us over we got to have peace with our past. Romans 8 1 says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you notice that it says, now there isn't any condemnation? You know, you don't have to fear that God has missed something or that your past is going to be brought up again. It's done when when you're washed in the blood, when you ask Jesus to come into your life and forgive you of your sins, you're washed. Those sins are cast, uh, one place in the word says, cast as far as the east is from the west. You know, if you travel north, you're eventually going to start going south but if you travel east you know you're never going to start traveling west as far as the east is from the west it's, it's gone never to be returned so forgives us and he washes us and he cleanses us and he casts their sins as far as the east is from the west they're never going to be brought up again it's done, it's complete, it's finished for everybody that's in him for everybody that's in Christ are you a follower of Jesus today? have you received him as your savior? that's your promise then you're in a relationship with him you can rest assured that you have his grace today the savior of the world offers you peace today even if you feel like you don't deserve it God's peace and his forgiveness is extended to you by his grace Here's the question. Why do you continue to cower in the corner when the Savior wants to embrace you? Why do you try to lock him out of your life? They were scared. They were afraid. They were locked up in there. They had locked the door. They didn't want anybody coming in to get them. But then the first promise that Jesus gives is to lift his disciples out of that pit of grief and despair by giving them his peace. And then after he gives them peace, wishes them peace, he lets them know they have a purpose. Verse 21 of our reading this morning. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. With the peace of God ruling in our hearts, we're commissioned to serve. You've got a job. I've got a job. We've all got a job to do. Remember when, when my kids was little, they'd go to a Sunday school class, they'd come out, and they'd be saying, if we all pull together, pull together, pull together, if we all pull together, what a meeting we'll have. Your work is my work, and our work is God's work. If we all pull together, what a meeting we'll have. God wants to give you peace, and he wants you to know that you've got a job to do. That first message was a message of comfort. Peace be with you. The second one, 
a message of commission as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. So how did the Father, in what way did the Father send Jesus? He sent him with a mission, sent him with a job, with something to accomplish. Luke 19 and 10 says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that commission and that job will continue through the church. This is Jesus authorizing his followers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he wasn't just speaking to the, to the apostles because there was other people in the room. It's not just the five-fold ministry that has this work. It's you and it's I uh, as members of the body in particular that we have a job to do, and that's to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world. He placed a mantle of responsibility on the church there. You know, there's only four chapters in John's gospel that Jesus doesn't refer to being sent by the Father. Every other chapter of John has something referring to Jesus being sent by the Father. And now that Jesus has completed his mission, now that he's died on the cross and went to hell and preached to those in captivity and led them out and came back and appeared to the disciples, His work's finished there. He, it's up to us. It becomes our work. Now that he's completed his mission, he becomes the sender, and the church becomes those who are sent. The church becomes his representative. The church becomes his agent in this world. And just like it brought joy to the disciples, it's an encouragement to us, or it should be an encouragement to us to think that despite our failings, despite our failures, despite our shortcomings, despite our flaws, the Lord entrusts us with his work and with his word. But Jesus doesn't commission as followers without enabling them to have the power to fulfill their mission. John 20 and 22 says, And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He blew on What do you think happened when he blew on They received the Holy Spirit. I can't imagine the resurrected, glorious Christ blowing on his disciples here and saying, receive the Holy Spirit, and then nothing happening. At that moment, their inner man quickened and became alive with resurrection life. Just like God had breathed into Adam in Genesis 2-7, Jesus Christ, the head of the new creation, breathed life into his church. And it's the life of God in them that's going to make their mission successful. There was a man by the name of Alfred Eldershot who was a Jewish convert to Christianity and he was a Bible scholar and he lived in the 1800s. He'd been dead 140 years. And, and this is what he said in, in one of his writings. This was the birthday of the church, even as Pentecost was her baptism day. People a lot of times refer to the day of Pentecost as the birthday of the church, but Eldershine is right to say this is the birthday of the church. And to understand that, we've got to understand the difference in between what John's theology of what the Holy Spirit was and Luke's theology of the Holy Spirit. John emphasizes the theme of life and truth when he talks about the Holy Spirit. 
And Luke, the author of Acts, talks about power. Emphasizes that theme of power. Here in John 20 and 22, the church receives the life of the Holy Spirit. And then later on in Acts 2, they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you received spiritual life this morning? Have you been born of the Spirit? The Word of God says you must be born again. Not only have you been born of the Spirit, but have you been filled with the Spirit? Have you been endued with power from on high, as the Word of God says? Luke later on deals extensively with that, with that issue. It's not either or. God wants us to experience both. John 20, 23 says, If you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. And, and to, to get the full implication of that, that statement, it isn't a small thing. What's Jesus saying to his church in verse 23? In the NIV study Bible, in the notes, it explains it this way. God does not forgive people's sins because we do it. We do so. Nor does he withhold forgiveness because we do. Rather, those who proclaim the gospel are in effect forgiving or not forgiving sins. Depending on whether the hearers accept or reject Jesus Christ. If you tell people about his forgiveness... You're extending forgiveness to them. If they respond, they're indeed forgiven of their sins. But if you don't tell them, if God opens up the door for you to share and you don't tell them, you're not extending forgiveness of sins to them and their sins won't be forgiven. We have to be sure that we take advantage of every opportunity that the Holy Spirit gives us to do his work in this world. Jesus proclaims peace. He gives us purpose. He equips us with his power and he offers forgiveness to those that accept his grace. If there's one more message that he gave his disciples, And that message was an invitation to believe. Stop doubting and believe. You know, Thomas wasn't present with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared to him that first resurrection Sunday evening. He was somewhere else. And we don't know why he was there, but we know the disciples were... Radically shaken by Jesus' death. They were scared. They were afraid that Jesus appeared to them in the room. And he was standing there and he was talking to them. And he, he fellowshiped with them for a while. Then he left. And they made sure that... The disciples made sure that after Jesus appeared, they went and told Thomas. They went and found him. They told him what had happened. Have you ever been so excited about an experience with the Lord and you went and you tried to tell somebody and they just dumped water all over it? They rained on your parade. You know, I'm glad the disciples cared enough about Thomas to go and try and tell him that, that they had seen Jesus, that Jesus is alive and he's well and he spoke to us and he came in and visited with us. But Thomas's response wasn't encouraging to them at all. John 20 and 25 says, But he said unto them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. In the original Greek text in that part of it, there's a double negative, which, which means that what he had actually said is, I absolutely will not believe it. Here's this disciple of Jesus just being a stinker. 
Why is he acting like that? Well, some of it might have been his personality. He's an analytical person by nature. Thinks things through. Doesn't just go along to be going along. We saw that in the upper room when Jesus was talking about his departure. None of the disciples was really understanding him. It was Thomas that was just forthright enough to speak up and say, and it's John chapter 14, verse 5. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Like I said, Thomas isn't the kind of person that just goes along and be going along. But I think mostly his answer is just an expression of emotional pain. His best friend, his master, his leader, the man he had followed for three and a half years had been beaten, crucified, and buried. And he wasn't handling that really well. And the trauma of Jesus' death had hurt him deeply. Just think about it. He, he's preoccupied with the scars that Jesus received at his crucifixion. Thomas had invested himself wholeheartedly into following Jesus. And at this point, it had only led to heartache and hurt for him as he's standing there and he's talking to these other disciples. Have you ever been so hurt and so disappointed that it's hard for you to believe anything? You know, Thomas just wasn't being obstinate and cynical. He didn't want to get hurt again. He didn't want to believe something and then not see it come to pass. He's given them a real and an honest answer. Unless I see the scars, unless I, I see the wounds and put my hand into a side, I can't believe it. Then exactly one week later, that second Sunday, the disciples are together one more time. Almost exactly the same scenario. They're all in they're all in the room and they're up there and they're all together, but this time Thomas is with. And just like before, Jesus appeared in the room. Just like before, he begins with those same precious words, peace be with you. But then he turns away from the 99. He turns away from the others that were already there and that already seen and that already knew. And he puts his attention on the one that needs him the most. he invites Thomas to do exactly what he said he needed to do to believe. He says, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. What an awesome display of grace that was. And he spoke to Thomas and gave him the message, stop doubting and believe. The evidence is more than enough to support your faith. Now you've got to make a moral choice. Will you choose to continue your unbelief or will you now choose to stop doubting and believe? Doesn't the Lord have to say some things like that to us sometimes? Reminded of my dad this morning. I'd be doing something that he didn't agree with, that didn't please him, and his response to me would be straight up fly right. I knew what that meant. If I didn't respond quickly and correctly to what he was telling me to do, I would hear the scariest sound that there is in the world. 
for those of you who were raised like me, you know that that's the sound of a belt flying through bell ropes. But sometimes God has to tell us straight up and fly right. There's a little doubting Thomas in all of us. God understands our struggles and he's gracious, but there comes that moment sometimes when we have to embrace the truth and we have to believe. There comes that moment when, when it's no longer acceptable to allow the pain from the past to dominate our future. Stop doubting and believe. Anybody here need to make a decision like that? Anybody here need to decide to take the Lord at his word and move forward? Stop doubting. Believe. Trust God. And walk with Him. And, and I love Thomas's response to Jesus when Jesus tells him, you know, take your hands. Give me your finger. Put it right here. Put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas does those things. And regardless of its past failings, this is his finest hour because he falls to his knees and he says, my Lord, my God. The doubters become the worshiper. He surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's acknowledged the divinity of Christ with absolute clarity. What a powerful proof of the divinity of Jesus in this scene. No mistake about it. Thomas declaring Jesus isn't God. Jesus receiving it. It's where we need to be in our commitment to the Lord. Until I understand God as my Lord and my God. I can't fully enter into his purpose for my life. I can't fully accomplish the things that he has called me to do. I can't walk in the place that he wants me to walk and neither can you. Jesus gave Thomas one word of instruction. Because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. How can we believe if we haven't seen the resurrected Christ the way that Thomas did? We see the evidence around us. John gives us the answer in verse 31. He said, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is John's intention behind writing this gospel. It's not just a story to entertain. It's a message of truth that needs to be embraced. It needs to be embraced with the same kind of personal commitment that Thomas made when he addressed Jesus after he had put his hands in the nail prints and put his hand in his side. My Lord and my God. When Jesus enters your life, he declares peace. That addresses our past. Then Jesus looks and he speaks to our discouragement and gives us purpose. Despite our failings, when we choose to believe, Jesus enables us with his power. But none of this is effective until we decide to accept his invitation. His invitation to lay aside our sins, to lay down our hurts, to lay down our griefs, to lay down our discouragement to lay down our doubt and to turn to Jesus and believe. Is Jesus your Lord? Have you bowed your heart to him? 
with that confession on your lips. You know, just as surely as he called Thomas to believe him, he calls everybody here this morning and watching on Facebook and watching on YouTube later on and listening to the podcast later on, he's calling. That the invitation is extended this morning. That if you confess your mouth, Romans 10, 9, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved it's your opportunity God knows who you are and he loves you and he wants you to know him and to love him but how do you do that first thing you do like everybody else have to admit you're a sinner being a sinner means that we're imperfect and that we do wrong that we fall short of God's perfect standard but it also means that we're separated from him and we deserve his judgment but he loves us he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins that's what this entire past week has been about, this Passion Week that we just went through and Pastor preached about last weekend. Jesus Christ received the stripes on his back, those, those 39 stripes with that cat of nine tails from that Roman soldier that ripped his body and tore it to shreds and made it so that you couldn't even see and understand that that was a man that was standing in front of you. He took and he carried our sins to the cross and he died and he bled and he was buried. But he didn't stay buried. He was resurrected. He died for your sins. He was punished so that you don't have to be. Death didn't defeat him. After three days he rose from the dead alive. So trusting in Jesus' sacrifice is the only way to find forgiveness from God for your sins and to begin a relationship with him. If you don't know him, I urge you to take that step of faith with him today. What do I have to do? Just talk to him. Pray. you believe in his son that, that he died for your sins and you accept him as your savior why don't y'all just pray with me today just repeat after me Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life I ask your forgiveness and turn from everything that I know is wrong Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for me, to set me free from my sins. Please come into my life. Save me. Fill me with your spirit and be with me forever. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. If you pray that prayer, you believe it in your heart. Tell somebody. Let them know. Jesus came and he changed me. Amen. But all of that can happen because of Jesus in the room. Amen. Hallelujah. God bless you all today. We're so thankful that you chose to spend your Resurrection Sunday morning with us. If you have children in the back, please don't leave before you retrieve them. We love them, but we don't want to take care of them. <laughs> Just kidding.
be sure. Retrieve them. Enjoy your Sunday. Enjoy your family. Hallelujah. We look forward to seeing you guys on Wednesday evening. God bless y'all. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord. Thank you.